Hello, fellow teachers. I'm Ben Wilcox, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I look forward to spending some time with you today studying and learning from 3 Nephi, chapters 20 through 26. And uh, thank you for joining me. My purpose in making these lessons is not only to give you insight into the scriptures, but also provide you with methods and materials that will help you to teach that insight to other people in relevant and meaningful ways. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. So if you're interested in lesson plans, PowerPoint slides, or the handouts that I make, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to all of those resources. And now I invite you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. The first icebreaker is going to take just a little bit of prep work to set up. And what you need is a hundred pennies. And you can put them in a jar or a plastic container, or you could even just leave them in a pile at the front of the classroom. And for fun, you might ask them to make a guess as to how many pennies are in the pile, and then give a reward to whoever gets the closest. But then ask them to open their scriptures to 3 Nephi 26.6 to discover how much of what Jesus taught to the Nephites is actually included in the Book of Mormon record. And in that verse, we discover that if we're going to take Mormon literally, not even a hundredth part. And at that point, you reach into the jar and pull out one penny. Of all that Jesus taught, this is about how much we actually have recorded. And just think of all the other wonderful things that Jesus must have taught that we don't even have in the Book of Mormon. Now, in verse 9, he tells us that some of those greater things that Jesus taught would be manifest in the future. And I do imagine that we have a lot of those things in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the collective revelations of all of our modern prophets. But in the Book of Mormon, we've got a hundredth part. Now, with that in mind, what does that tell us about what Mormon did decide to include? And I think it means that what we do have must be the most important things that he felt we should know in the latter days, since the Book of Mormon was written specifically for us. It really gives emphasis to what he did decide to include. And that's why I find it fascinating that there's a message in these chapters that's repeated three separate times. We find basically the same subject matter in chapter 16, chapter 20, and chapter 21. And that's just amazing to me. Of all the things that he could have included in that hundredth part, he chose to emphasize this particular message even more. And what is that message? Well, I like to break it down and summarize it into six simple words or phrases. And if you know these six words, you'll understand the message. And uh, I'm going to let you discover them. Here's a brief fill-in-the-blank activity that'll help you to do just that. And I'll make this available as a handout for download. For fun, especially if you're teaching the youth, I like to have them do this quick fill-in-the-blank activity first to kind of get them in the right frame of mind and get them going. And the key is to fill in the blank with the word that rhymes with the other and also solves the clue. So, for example, if the clue is a headache and the given word is brain, 
What word could you put in that blank that rhymes with brain and also describes the clue? Well, a headache is a brain pain. So now see if you can do these others as well. And uh, here are the answers. A band-aid is a scratch patch. A joust would be a night fight. Gardening would be soil toil. An electrocardiogram would be a heart chart. A realtor's job would be dwelling selling. And then uh, Chewbacca's favorite dessert would be a Wookiee cookie, of course. So that's just for fun. But now to the really important blanks to fill in. Here are the phrases with the missing keywords. Now look up each of the suggested references and you're going to find a word that fills in that blank and completes the message. That word will appear in each of those verses. And it's important to note that this message is taught in different orders and with different details and emphases in the actual chapters. But this activity is going to at least give your students a basic understanding of the message. And then in their personal study, they're going to be able to go through and pick out the message much more clearly and easily. Now, when they discover the word, I'd encourage them to mark it in each of those verses so that the meaning really stands out. And here we go. The first word. In the last days, the Lord will restore the fullness of his gospel. This is a promise that the Lord made to many prophets of the past. Yes, there'd be a general apostasy on the earth, but one day he would bring about a restoration of his truth and his church. And that restoration began in the year 1820 when a young boy decided to seek wisdom in a grove of trees. In chapter 21.6, instead of speaking about the fullness of his gospel, he uses a synonymous phrase for the restoration. And can you find it? He talks about bringing them to the knowledge of the true points of my doctrine. Well, that's the restoration. That's what the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants teach us. That's what's been revealed line upon line, precept upon precept, throughout the history of the church all the way up to the modern day. The true points of his doctrine. And we've been blessed in the latter days with this fullness of his gospel. Now, with the restoration of that fullness, what's the next step? Our next phrase. He will then gather his people from the four quarters of the earth. And that's the major work of the latter days, isn't it? The gathering of Israel. In his first big talk to the youth of the church, do you remember the subject that President Nelson decided to speak about? It was the gathering of Israel and the youth's role in accomplishing it, calling them to be a part of the great youth battalion. Most of what we do in this church is focused on that gathering. We gather by doing missionary work. We gather by perfecting the saints. We gather by redeeming the dead through temple work. Our calling, our mission, our duty is to gather. And there's another synonym word that we could throw in here to add to the idea of gathering. It actually appears 11 times in chapter 21. The word is work. The gathering of Israel is a great work for us to accomplish. 
But what kind of work is it? Uh, is it backbreaking work? Mind-numbing work? Busy work? No, verse 9 calls it a great and marvelous work. And if you've ever sincerely taken part in any aspect of the gathering of Israel, I'm sure you know what he's talking about. It is great. It is marvelous. And then our next word. For this work of gathering, he will give them a land for their inheritance. And what's the land being talked about here? Well, it's the Americas. To, to at least to provide them with a starting point for the gathering. And we know from the Doctrine and Covenants that God played the decisive role in the creation of the United States. And why? So that there would be a land created where a freedom of religion would allow the restored church to be established and eventually flourish. So that gospel message could be spread not just to people in the United States, but all over the world. This was the starting point. And if you want a little more detail on that whole story, uh, you could watch my video for 1 Nephi 11 through 15, where an angel explains just that to Nephi. Next, the Gentiles, or anyone who accepts the fullness, will be numbered among his people. The gospel's for everyone. Nobody is excluded. We've got to remember that Jesus is a one-by-one one kind of deity. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that he numbers his people. Nobody escapes his attention. So as we endeavor to gather Israel, if they accept, they'll be numbered among us. And every year in General Conference, the church statistical report is read. It's a powerful reminder that we, as a church, literally number and record every individual who has made a covenant to follow Christ. Records are important to the church, and anyone who wishes to be a part of his church is going to be accepted and numbered among his people. Then next, together they will build what? Zion, the city of the saints. And in early church history, Zion was seen as more of an actual physical location. Kirtland, Independence, Nauvoo, and Salt Lake City were all seen and referred to as types of Zion, a central gathering place for the saints. And there's another title for Zion that you could also mark in these chapters. That name? The New Jerusalem. Now, our understanding and definition of what constitutes Zion, or the New Jerusalem, has really expanded over the years. Now we define Zion by its stakes. Wherever we have a stake, or district, or ward, or branch, that is Zion. And Zion has now been established in countries all over the world as, as more of an idea or a unity than, than one central location. Every time we attend a church meeting, every time we fulfill our callings, every time we minister, every time we pay our tithing or do family history work, we are building Zion. Now the last word. We know what will happen to those who respond positively to the fullness of the gospel, who allow themselves to be gathered to this land. They are numbered and called to help build up Zion. But what about those who reject the fullness or who oppose it? What will be their fate? It's our last phrase. Those who do not accept the gospel will be tread down like a lion among sheep. Now what on earth could that mean? 
Sounds a little violent, doesn't it? And I really don't think it means that church members are encouraged to engage in acts of retaliation against those that refuse to accept the fullness. I think it's a message to those who will attempt to stop the growth and progress of the church. Trying to do that is like trying to stop a lion with a bunch of sheep. The lion's just going to tear right through them. They don't even stand a chance. Another image is used in chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, where a man gathers sheaves together and a bull comes in with brass hooves and stomps on them, separating the wheat from the chaff. There are other images that suggest the same idea in other places in the scriptures. You're probably most familiar with the one in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpreted by Daniel of the little stone cut out of the mountain without hands that rolls forth, gaining size and momentum until it breaks in pieces all the kingdoms of the world and then fills the whole earth. Doctrine and Covenants 65 refers to that same dream. It's all the same message. And that message is you can't stop the church from growing. It's like trying to stop a lion with sheep, like trying to stop a bull from separating wheat, like trying to stop a giant rolling stone with a flimsy statue. It's just not going to work. Either we become a part of the rolling stone or we're crushed by it. Either we join the lion or we're torn by it. And then we get yet another image for the church's growth in chapter 22, verses 2 through 3. And it's the image of a tent. Isaiah says, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. So the church is going to spread across the earth like a giant tent. And I'm a backpacker, so I know that the more stakes you drive down, the stronger your tent is going to be. And maybe you've wondered why we call them the stakes of the church, or we go to a stake center for stake conference. It's because of that prophecy right there. So many people are going to join the church that they're going to begin to break forth to the left and to the right. The curtains will have to be stretched, the cords lengthened, and the stakes strengthened. I really love the story that Wilfred Woodruff shares about a special priesthood meeting held in a little 14 by 14 foot log schoolhouse in Kirtland. And here's an object lesson recommendation. I'll often measure out a 14 by 14 foot square in my classroom and mark it with masking tape so that they can visualize that space. I tell them that this story took place in a building that size. And at the time, could fit all of the priesthood holders in the entire church. Now compare that to a modern-day priesthood session held in the massive conference center that, even with its immense size, can only hold a small fraction of the worldwide priesthood body. And here's what Wilfred Woodruff describes what happened that night. On Sunday night, the prophet called on all who held the priesthood to gather into the little log schoolhouse that they had there. It was a small house, perhaps 14 feet square, but it held the whole of the priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who were then in the town of Kirtland, and who had gathered together to go off in Zion's camp. That was the first time I ever saw Oliver Cowdery or heard him speak, the first time I ever saw Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball 
and the two Pratts, and Orson Hyde, and many others. There were no apostles in the church then except Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. When we got together, the prophet called upon the elders of Israel with him to bear testimony of this work. Those that I have named spoke, and a good many that I have not named bore their testimonies. When they got through, the prophet said, Brethren, I have been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight. But I want to say to you before the Lord, that you know no more concerning the destinies of the church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. I was rather surprised. He said, It is only a little handful of priests that you see here tonight. But this church will fill the Rocky Mountains. It will fill North and South America. It will fill the world. Now what an incredibly bold statement for Joseph to make under those circumstances. When the church was so small, to make a prophecy of global proportions is really something, isn't it? Some might even say presumptuous. But he turned out to be prophetic, didn't he? And you know what I would really love? I want to know what he saw that night. What was the vision that he had of the church? Obviously, it extended far beyond those circumstances. And I ask myself, did he see our day? Was that what he was looking at? And I wonder what would happen if Joseph came to my ward this Sunday and we held a special testimony meeting. And maybe we would get up and we'd testify of how amazing the progress of the church has been since his day. And maybe we could triumphantly testify of a conference center filled with priesthood holders, or 16 million members worldwide, or 168 dedicated temples, or 67,000 full-time missionaries, or the fact that we have congregations in 160 different countries worldwide. Now, I'm not sure, but I just wonder if Joseph would then walk up to the pulpit and say, brethren and sisters, I've been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here today. But I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. This church will fill the world. He may just say the exact same thing. What did he see that night? Maybe it's, it's far beyond what we can even fathom right now. Did he see 50 million members, 500,000 missionaries, a thousand temples, congregations in every single country on the planet? I don't know, but I imagine that we would be very surprised if we were able to tap into that same vision from that night in that little 14 by 14 foot log schoolhouse in the obscure town of Kirtland, Ohio, in 1834. Some questions. What are some of the most exciting church milestones you've witnessed as a member of the church in your lifetime? What opposition have you seen to the church, and what helps you to disregard it? And what are you willing to do to help move the church forward? And to conclude this portion, just a little story. 
I remember on my mission in Brazil that the most popular news program in the country did a report entitled The Mormons of Utah. And unfortunately, the program wasn't even about the church. It was about the fundamentalists down in southern Utah with all the reports of abuse and scandal. But they never differentiated between that and the actual Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'll never forget talking to one of the stalwart members of the church in the area, and he was so distraught. And he said, this is going to destroy the church in Brazil. Well, I ask you, did that news report destroy the church in Brazil? I'm happy to tell you that it didn't. In fact, that very week, two new families were baptized into the ward. There wasn't even a blip in the growth of the church. The lion was not deterred. The stone was not stopped. So remember, protesters at general conference, anti-church websites and books, social crusaders and apostate groups have never succeeded in stopping, let alone slowing the growth of the church. Brigham Young once said that when people kick the church, they only succeed in kicking it upstairs. Whenever we get discouraged by the opposition, let's keep this prophecy in mind. Maybe that's why it appears three times in Third Nephi, so that we never forget the destiny of Christ's church in the latter days. I'll conclude with something that Joseph famously said. The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame. But the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear. Till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Well, speaking of opposition to the church and opposition in general, 3 Nephi chapter 22 is a beautiful message of comfort to all of the Lord's servants. In fact, in 2217, he says that this chapter represents the heritage of the servants of the Lord. I like to leave this chapter very open-ended with my students and ask just one simple question. What is your favorite message of comfort from this chapter and why? And then give them time to read and to share. Some of my favorites, verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Verse 10, for the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Verse 13, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. And verse 7, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. If you allow your students time to study and to ponder these verses, I know that it will lead to a meaningful discussion of God's comfort and mercy. Moving on, I'd like to start this next section with the following quote and challenge. It was something said by President Joseph F. Smith. He said, 
By this principle, the loyalty of the people of this church shall be put to the test. By this principle, it shall be known who is for the kingdom of God and who is against it. By this principle, it shall be seen whose hearts are set on doing the will of God and keeping his commandments, thereby sanctifying the land of Zion unto God, and who are opposed to this principle and have cut themselves off from the blessings of Zion. There is a great deal of importance connected with this principle. For by it, it shall be known whether we are faithful or unfaithful. Well, here's my question. What is the principle that he's talking about here? I would call this principle a litmus test commandment, because it's not necessarily the most important commandment that we can keep, but like Joseph F. Smith says, it really indicates who is for the building up of Zion and who is only partially committed. I call it the great separator. And do you have any ideas what that commandment or principle would be? For the answer, go to 3 Nephi chapter 24, verse 8, and you'll have a hint. What is it? Tithing. The law of tithing is one of those things that really separates the committed disciples of Christ's church. In 3 Nephi 24, Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3 almost word for word. And Malachi had some very important things to say about tithing. I think it's significant that Joseph F. Smith said that this principle would be a separating one, because that's exactly the same perspective that Malachi takes. Malachi begins by speaking of the second coming, and he asks a question in verses 2 through 3. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the initial question there is, who is going to survive the second coming? Who will abide it? Because when he comes, only the pure are going to remain. The second coming will separate and purge the silver and gold from the dross. Tithing, apparently, is a part of that separating, purging process. And that truth is clearly taught in Doctrine and Covenants 64.23. Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man. And verily, it is a day of sacrifice and a day for the tithing of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. Because of that verse, I've heard some jokingly refer to tithing as, as fire insurance. And though I do think it provides us with spiritual protection, I feel that tithing is so much more than that. It's not something we do because we fear some future painful calamity. In fact, I often refer to tithing as the greatest deal ever offered to man. So let's examine this principle according to Malachi. To begin, a question. What does Malachi compare not paying your tithing to in 3 Nephi 24 verses 8 through 9? And there it says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? in tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, 
even this whole nation. So what does he compare it to? Not paying your tithing is like robbing God. Now I can imagine somebody taking offense at that and saying, well, hey now, if I don't pay my tithing, you could accuse me of not being supportive or that I'm unwilling to sacrifice. But robbing God? How is that robbing him? That's my money from my paycheck that I earned. So I'm not robbing anybody. And, and how would you answer somebody that said that? I think the answers in Doctrine and Covenants 104, 14 through 15. I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens and built the earth, my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine. And it is my purpose to provide for my saints, for all things are mine. So the answer to that argument is that all things really do belong to God. And that is a very important starting point for our discussion on tithing. Because if you don't believe that truth, none of the rest of the other points are going to work for you. This is the foundation principle. All things come from God. So I would say to that person, well, who blessed you with a healthy body that makes it possible for you to work? Who sent you to the type of situation in life where you could get an education which made it possible for you to get your job? Who blessed you with your mind that allows you to work the way you do and earn what you do? Or King Benjamin's suggestion, who gave you your life and is lending you breath from day to day and moment to moment? Who created the world and its abundance? Really, when it comes down to it, all things are God's. He's just allowing us to use them and, and be stewards of them. Now, until you come to that realization, paying your tithing is always going to be difficult. And you can see why, right? If I look at it as God's money, he's only asking for 10%. And he's graciously offering you 90% of what actually belongs to him. If I look at my paycheck as his, then I can easily say, Oh, you want 10% of your money? Well, sure, I can give you what's already yours. And you're going to let me hold on to the other 90%? Wow, that, that's very gracious of you. And sometimes for fun, to make this point, I ask if anybody has some cash on them. And usually somebody does. And then I ask if I can see it. They give it to me, and then I turn to another person in the class and hand them the money and say, Here, here you go. It's yours. And then I say, see, look how easy that was to give away somebody else's money. That wasn't hard for me at all. I can give away your money all day long and it doesn't affect me. But if it's my money, well, well, that's a little bit harder to do. So you got to start there. All things are God's and all he asks is 10% of what's already his. Now back to 3 Nephi 24. In verse 10, Malachi is going to tell us what God uses that 10% for. I mean, do we send that money to God? Uh, put it in a rocket ship and send it off to Kolob? No. I mean, what's God going to do with a bunch of money? Is there some big money bin in Salt Lake where they just hold on to it until the millennium and, and God can collect his due? No. What does the beginning of verse 10 tell us the purpose or use of tithing is? It's so that there may be meat in my house. And what does that mean? 
is so that God can have a way to run and maintain his house or his church. In a temporal world, even the church has temporal needs. So what is tithing money used for? To maintain the church, to build chapels and temples, and then continuously maintain those buildings, to pay the electric bills, the heating and cooling systems, landscaping, to keep the grounds beautiful, to print hymn books and lesson materials, to provide religious education to the youth, and to run all of the church's programs. And then I'd like to ask them this. We say we're paying tithing to God, but really, who uses the churches and temples? Who uses the hymn books and the lesson manuals? Who benefits from religious education and the other church programs? We do. God doesn't take those things for himself. He gives it right back, just in a different form. This is looking like a pretty amazing deal, isn't it? And then it doesn't stop there. Then he says, you know what? Since you're so willing to sacrifice and give up 10% of what actually belongs to me, I'm going to bless you for that. I'm going to give back more than you gave. Now I ask my students to look for all the blessings that God promises to those who will offer their tithes in verses 10 through 12. And I see at least four. One, he will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I love that imagery. I picture that above everybody's home, there's a horizontal window directly above it. And when we offer our tithing, God calls out to the angels, Open the windows of heaven for the Jones family. And the angels pull the lever and whoosh, the windows drop open and out pours the blessings. And we're like, ah, I'm drowning in blessings. There won't be room enough to receive them. Now, that can mean temporal blessings and prosperity. But I don't really think that's the spirit of it. When most of us hear the word blessings, I think our minds immediately go to temporal blessings. I'm so blessed because I have a home and a job and food to eat and clothing to wear. But I think that's a pretty limited view of blessings. More importantly, blessings include truth, personal guidance and revelation, happiness, gospel knowledge, comfort, confidence, protection from evil, weaknesses turning into strengths, and on and on and on. These are the real and most important blessings of our lives. Gordon B. Hinckley once said, I do not say that if you pay an honest tithing, you will realize your dream of a fine house, a Rolls Royce, and a condominium in Hawaii. The Lord will open the windows of heaven according to our need and not according to our greed. If we are paying tithing to get rich, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. I believe that faithful paying of our tithing will provide us with temporal blessings. But more importantly, it will increase our spiritual blessings. They will be poured out upon us. A second blessing in verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And in this case, I don't believe that the devourer is Satan. I think it's another power. If you read the rest of the verse, I think there's a clue. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the fields. 
I think the devourer is time. Time will not devour your goods. He will rebuke it, not destroy it. I think God will still work within the realm of of reasonable reality. But I think it could mean that things will last longer for us. You'll get more use out of them. Your clothing, your investments, your material possessions. I had an uncle who owned a truck that he used for his business. He put 400,000 miles on it without any major repairs needing to be done. Other than routine maintenance cost, that truck just lasted and lasted and lasted. I think that God rebuked the devourer of time. My uncle called it his tithing truck because he sincerely believed that God was blessing him in that way because of his commitment to tithing. My parents' washer and dryer lasted for 25 years before it needed to be replaced. They attributed that blessing to tithing. And I've seen that in my life too. We have things that have lasted well beyond what was expected. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you pay your tithing that you won't ever have repairs or unforeseen costs or financial issues in your life. I just believe that those kinds of things will be less, will be fewer, if you faithfully make that sacrifice. The devourer will be rebuked or held back for your benefit. We may not even realize the blessings that we're being given because we just can't know what would have happened otherwise. What accidents didn't happen, what things didn't break down, what pitfalls were avoided. I think it would be cool to someday have revealed to us these invisible blessings, to understand and know what would have happened had we not made the sacrifice. Another blessing in verse 12, all nations shall call you blessed. We'll stand out. Our commitment will be recognized and admired by others. Who knows? People from outside the church may say, wow, look at those members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Did you know they pay 10% of everything they make to their church? Now that's dedication. Maybe there's something to them and their gospel. Perhaps paying our tithing could be a great missionary tool. And finally, one more blessing. Ye shall be a delightsome land. Another blessing for tithing? Happiness. God will give you a more delightsome life. Not a trouble-free one, but a happy one. And I believe that's true. And tithing really has given me what I consider a delightsome life. Well, I hope that these verses have brought you to the conclusion that I've come to about tithing. That it is actually the greatest deal that you've ever been offered in life. When you look at it this way, it's hard to even consider tithing to be a sacrifice. And while teaching, if you feel your class is still not quite grasping these concepts, you could try this little object lesson that I've used to great effect. I go out and buy 10 oranges and place them in a bucket. And I tell my class to imagine the following scenario. You're walking down the street and a friend walks up to you and says, hey, I want to make a deal with you. And you say, okay, what is it? And they say, I have this bucket of 10 oranges and I want to know if you want them. And you say, sure, but, but what's the catch? And your friend says, well, I'll give them to you, but, and you're like, oh, here it comes. I only ask that you give one of them back to me. And you look questioningly at them and say, 
You mean I can have the other nine and you just want me to give one back? And they say, yep, that's it. Deal or no deal. And you say, okay, deal. They hand you the bucket and you pluck one of them out and say, here you go. Now that's our first tithing principle, right? All things are God's. And he blesses us with all of that because all things are his. And all he asks is for 10%. But as you're going to walk away, your friend stops you and says, hang on. And now you're like, oh yeah, now here comes the catch. And he runs around the corner and with the orange that you gave him, he peels and juices it and comes back with a giant glass of orange juice and says, I want you to have this with the orange that you gave me. And he hands it to you. And see, that's our second principle of tithing. He gives it right back to us, but in a different form, through the blessings of his church. Now you're about to walk away with your bucket of nine oranges in one hand and your glass of orange juice in the other. When he stops you once again and says, hang on, one more thing. I'm so impressed that you would be willing to make that kind of deal with me. I'm so grateful for your sacrifice and in giving up that one orange. You know what I'd like to do for you? And he whistles, and you hear a truck backing up. Beep, beep, beep. And then, the bed of the truck starts to lift, and out pours a giant pile of more oranges, just burying you in them. So much that you don't have room enough to receive them. You look at your friend who has a giant smile on his face and says, pleasure doing business with you. And he turns and walks away. If that kind of thing happened to you, wouldn't you say that that was a pretty good deal? Yeah, probably the greatest kind of deal you've ever made. That's tithing, right? He will pour out the blessings of heaven from his windows when we're willing to make that special offering. So some questions that you might ask. Which of the four blessings have you seen come into your life through tithing? How would you respond to someone that said, tithing is ridiculous, the church asks way too much of us? And has the Spirit inspired you to make any changes based on what you've learned here? And are you willing to make them? Well, I love the law of tithing, and I'm so convinced of its power in my life that I wouldn't dare stop making that offering. I don't think I could afford not to pay my tithing. I don't have any of those amazing stories where I had to choose between paying my bills or paying my tithing, and then I paid it and a check out of nowhere appeared. Those kinds of things do happen at times, and they're wonderful manifestations of these principles. But I can give you my experience with tithing. This is what I know. I've always paid it, and I've never known a day of want in my life. God has blessed me immeasurably, spiritually and temporally. Spiritually more than temporally, but certainly the windows of heaven have poured out their abundance upon me and my family. And I believe that the Lord will do the same for you through a commitment to this greatest of deals. In the Lord's refining and separating process before the second coming, I I truly hope that you'll be found on the gold and silver side of things and not the dross. The Lord wants to bless you. Tithing 
is one amazing way that he does that. Now, with chapter 25, I'm not going to spend uh, any time there, I'm afraid, uh, because the message of that chapter is taught in every single one of the standard works, and I'm going to wait just a few months until we do Doctrine and Covenants chapter 2, where we'll go into much greater depth on the principles taught in that chapter. It's, of course, the famous prophecy of the coming of Elijah that would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And the Doctrine and Covenants has a lot to teach us on those principles. So I'm going to save that for then. But one final thought from chapter 26. In the last part of that chapter, you have this wonderful scene where Christ looses the tongues of the children and even the little babies begin to speak and teach. And they teach great things to the people, even greater than the things that Christ himself had taught. And I read that and I have to ask myself, why would Jesus do that? What lesson was he trying to teach them and all of us too? Well, I try to visualize it. How would I feel if as a parent, my little seven-year-old son turned to me after I'd taught a lesson from the scriptures and said, well, that was great, dad, but I'd like to teach you some deeper things about the gospel that I don't think that you understand yet. Or can you imagine if you had a little infant in your arms and it turned its innocent little face up to you and then said, mom, dad, I'd really like to teach you some things about the plan of salvation that I think you've misunderstood. Well, that's, that's the experience that these Nephites had. Do you think that you could ever look at that child in the same way after that kind of an experience? Whenever you looked into their faces, you would remember the incredible wisdom that came out of their mouths. I think it's one of the greatest lessons on humility that's ever been taught. Perhaps it reminds us that even the wisest of us can learn from the simplest. We should all be willing to listen as well as share. One of my favorite things about being a teacher is when my students teach me. And they do. And I'll be honest with you and admit that many of the insights that I teach on this channel have come from things that I've learned from my students over the years. We've got to be willing to learn as teachers as well as teach. And from somebody who's taught the scriptures for many years, I know that sometimes even teaching the gospel can be a temptation to pride. When we get a little too used to hearing the sound of our own voices teaching important things. Well, whenever I'm tempted to feel that pride, I remember this story in 3 Nephi. What greater way of demonstrating humility and teaching is there than what Christ is doing here? He allowed the children to teach even greater things than he himself had taught. I think most of us want to teach the most beautiful truths or the best stories or the most important lessons. I know I feel that way sometimes. But Christ allowed the perceived least among the people, the little children, to teach the highest and the deepest and the most beautiful things. Hopefully, we can follow Christ's example. Hopefully, we can remain teachable teachers and be willing to open our ears as well as our mouths. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed the insights and ideas this week. 
If you did, I invite you to share them with somebody that you feel it could help. I'd also love it if you hit the like and the subscribe buttons if you haven't done that already. Thank you for watching, and as always, get out there and teach with power.